Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 26, 2020, episode 180, Toldrums. Greetings, everyone. How you been? I know this is my fault for being away too long, but I miss everyone. Doing these shows sometimes is akin to having a conversation with a group of my friends, and it feels like it's been a while since we've caught up. So seriously, how have you been? I hope that things find you well, that you are safe, fulfilled, finding your way in these altered state days we find ourselves in. I sometimes wonder if those sentiments are too heavy-handed, but as I look across the landscape, there's something unique about 2020, and that it seems universal that we have all had some forms of disruption, pro or con, in these days. Some have been able to eke out a fairly routine and more conventional path, and others are on the other end of the spectrum. For us here, it feels a bit isolated, and it sure is strange to consider a visit to the supermarket as a outing. <laughs> if anything, just the frequency in which I operate a motor vehicle is awkward. I actually get in the car and think about driving. You know, in the distant past, driving a car was such an autonomous activity you just did it. Now I feel my foot depressing the accelerator and going for the brake. It's, it's a different time. You know, someday I think I will look back at all of this and have some profound understanding of what is going on, but for now we're too close to it. I think we'll reflect on our moods and our mental health. How this lack of connections with friends, coworkers, or simply someone you pass on the street the slowdown of face-to-face -face social interactions has impacted our well-being. It's a normal facet of our existence for most of us to interact with others, to laugh, to joke, to compete, and whatever else comes to our personal and group interactions. And, well, this has become just one large-scale event. I called this episode Doldrums because I feel a void. I know we have Zoom meetings, but there has been significantly less in-person interaction with beekeepers, whether it be meeting one-on-ones or training or whatever. It's had a surprising impact on me personally, and if I'm being honest, I kind of feel indifferent about beekeeping right now. I still have bees in the yard, and I still walk out and peek at the hives. I'm still working in the garage on some beekeeping maintenance and roadmap project, but something's missing. It's, it's hard to put a finger on it. I've had this undertone of doldrums all summer, and I came recently to surmise that it is this change, the lack of interaction and stimulus. It's hard to express it, but there's a little less joy right now and enthusiasm about beekeeping. I think it's hit and miss with people. I see the wonder and amazement, the thirst and hunger to learn from some of the new people to beekeeping who decided in this COVID pastime that maybe this is something they have interest in, so they've dived right in. 
But on the other hand, I see indifference by seasoned beekeepers that I touch base with. And I'm not sure what to make of it. I was wondering if my oversaturation with beekeeping for 10 plus years has normally, naturally brought me to this plateau. And it has nothing to do with the quote unquote times. Or if, which is probably more likely, it's directly related to it. I guess I should share that me, being me, even with indifference, I think you'll hear that I'm still working and looking and participating in beekeeping activities on a daily or weekly basis. As for the podcast, I've been in a period of reflection, you know. Do I have anything to say? I really feel like there's an aspect of having a passion to share something that compels you to want to get it out. Lately, eh. (laughs) There's just nothing bubbling to the surface, so I didn't slide behind the microphone. I feel like I didn't have anything to contribute. Ironically, it was this exploration of the lack of something to say that led me to think this. You know, I've had a few distractions. I've allowed myself to go in other directions. I'll talk about one in the closing. And, you know, it has to be said that there's been this nagging release of a solution at work that's weeks past due. And it's been fighting us all the week. And it finally, finally got it done and went out this weekend. All the while, three new really large-scale projects came in. Of course, the end of year, they all have to be delivered by year-end. And holding all that together while working from home has been a large-scale undertaking, and it's sapping the energy out of me. So there's that. I am sometimes a vegetable by the end of the workday. So when will something come bubbling to the surface? I think that was a Spaceball Movies moment. I've been leading up to this in my brain, asking myself, when will then be now? Because I know sooner or later I'm going to get back into the groove and come back and put an episode out. And, well, I think I have reached critical mass and the gumption to put out a show, and here I am. The answer, of course, is right now. And my little voice has been coaching me no, really kicking me in the butt to share some thoughts that have been mulling over for the past few weeks and get them out of my brain. With no further ado for this episode, let's take stock of what's going to get covered. Some of them is newsy and notesy, and some of them is some recent learnings and epiphanies, especially something important in the local hive report. So you got to stay with me to the end. Roundtable number one, bee venom and potential uses for cancer. It's in the news. Roundtable number two, Tom agrees with me. Roundtable number three, a tip for clearing honey supers and recounting a little surprise along the way. Roundtable number four, gotcha. Such a clever group out there in Washington. Roundtable number five, bee yard pest deterrence. I have a topic, and depending on how long we go, it's called Dynamic. It's an editorial. It's a long one, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to fit it in this show. I may have to save it for 181, but we'll see if that one floats in. 
and I have a couple other scraps out there. So, um, as I sit here today, I'm somewhat disorganized. Can you tell? Some of the order might change, but that's generally what's going to happen. So, let's go. Let's slide into roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, a target on cancer. This theme has surfaced in the past, but I do not know that I have seen recently anything that has this kind of interest coupled with the impact potential. News surfaced in early September of a study where laboratory results are demonstrating that honeybee venom rapidly kills aggressive breast cancer cells. Given I'm not a scientist, but I do happen to work for a pharma company, I cannot help but be exposed to the various approach scientists are exploring to eradicate cancer. The modern approach, as I see it, is not to nuke the entire body with chemicals to kill the cancer, but to go after a novel approach that identifies the cancer cells from the good cells through some identified fingerprint, penetrate the evil cell and deliver a knockout blow that selectively kills only the cancer cells. It is revolutionizing cancer care that we now have the ability scientifically to target specific cancer cells. It's my impression that cancer is not too dissimilar in this time where we're making great advances to when I was a youngster. In my youth, the prospect of having a heart bypass was life and death in the 70s. Nowadays, you go in for a procedure in the morning and they are sending you home after lunch. That's no joke. It is astonishing how routine it has become and I'm hoping we're entering that era for cancer over the next decade. It feels like cancer is going through a similar cycle, and I can't be too simplistic about the C word, but what I know about it is typically the new novel approach is to identify the proteins and break through the cell wall. The immunity system of a human being, for some reason, didn't allow for that to occur and now what they've decided to do is attack by identifying the proteins on the outside of a cancer cell that are unique and then go after breaking through the shell of the outer wall in layman's terms and eradicating the cell from the outside in in the case of this discovery i know the focus is on one of the main components of venom melitin the presence of melitin in venom is well known, and I personally have encountered it in numerous references over my years of learning about bees. Melitin is one of the three constituents of venom that can cause it to be lethal if you happen to be allergic. And in particular, of those three, it's in the most abundance. I mentioned the three constituents. The first one is Phospholipase, AT, at 15 to 20% of the total venom chemical makeup. Then there's melitin, which is 40 to 
And the third is a trace of apamin, which makes up about 2% of the honeybee venom payload. There's also other enzymes, peptides, and active mains, I think is the right word, as part of the chemical makeup of beekeeping venom, or bee, uh, honeybee venom. When you look at the extraction of this compound and its application in this particular finding, it is said that Melitin enters the surface of the plasma membrane and forms holes or pores, which in turn causes the cell to die, end quote. In looking back to my master beekeeper notes, I knew I had a remark that's something of something that sounds similar, but I'm not sure if it represents the same thing. This came from another source, quote, Melitin, which makes up 50% of dry weight, it causes the rupture of blood and mast cells and depresses blood pressure and respiration, end quote. I look at that and wonder if someone knew all along what melitin does when you get a beekeeping sting and said, maybe we ought to try this. I'm, I'm making, you know, conjecture that maybe that's how something came about to, to even look at this, but... I'm going to say this. In the study, they summed up the role that they found Melitin plays when they were testing with mice and making the discovery. I can't say this is what we sometimes refer to as a mechanism of action. That means, how does it actually work? But to me, this is the closest that I found. Quote, The role of bee venom, or Melitin, as a natural anti-angiogenic in the biological sequelae, after radiation exposure is verified. Hence, bee venom and its major constituent, melitin, might represent a potential therapeutic strategy for increasing the radiation response of solid tumors, end quote. There's a word in there that is key to the understanding of what they're talking about, anti-angiogenic, easy for me to say. Anti-angiogenic is defined as of or relating to naturally occurring substance, drug, or other compound that can destroy or interfere with the fine network of blood vessels needed by tumors to grow and metastasize. Hmm. I, I do think I have to say that it says after radiation exposure. So, I'm not sure, but are they radiating you and then giving you this? I, I, I'm not clear how that got put together. I'm trying to envision that, just like you are. There's another unfamiliar word in there that I tripped over. Sequela. What that means is an after effect of disease, condition, or injury. If you have cancer, what's the after effect of it, is what I'm interpreting that. Maybe someone who has listened to all the shows can give me assist on this one, but there are a number of beekeeping-related compounds that have been called out as beneficial in the past for their potential health implication, and yet here's another possible avenue discovered. And I had heard rumors of people experimenting with bee venom for a number of things. Of course, apotherapy comes to mind. But here's a, a scientist going after cancer 
with it. That that's an interesting approach because it's now in you know research for a pharma company or whatever it is. But not a surprise, and there's so many different opportunities out there. Propolis, Manuka honey, bee venom, benefits of pollen ingestion, certainly honey for wounds, sore throats, other ailments. Yeah, the things that bees give us are truly amazing. The researchers disclosed that bee venom components were, quote, interfering with the main messaging or cancel signaling pathways that are fundamental for the growth and replication of cancer cells, end quote. It went on to say it effectively shuts down the signaling pathways for the reproduction of triple negative and HER2 cancer cells. This all adds up to, not only does bee venom rapidly destroy the cancer cells, in the way that I think it does, the outer shells or whatever, making them susceptible. But it also reduces the cancer cells' chemical messages, which enable the cancer to divide and proliferate. It's a one-two punch. That's really kind of cool. I have a Kevin moment about this. I wonder, like our discussions of the benefits of Manuka honey, or honeys that have some unique properties about them, does the flora and fauna of the bees that they're using in their testing play a role? It's well understood that melitin is in honeybee venom. But is the melitin in France bees the same as the melitin in Brazil bees? Even in the United States, there's different forage in the northeast section, mid-Atlantic, where we are, versus, say, in Arizona in the arid desert. Isn't that interesting to think about? I always wonder if the human idiom, you are what you eat, applies when distinguishing compounds for pharmaceuticals. This notion also, you know, often comes up for me when I think about these type of findings, pharmaceutical use of bee products. You know, Manuka honey is only found where Manuka honey is made. Now, one of the things I've read in an alternate article of this is that melitin can be produced, synthesized, meaning they can make an alternative that is not sourced from nature. End of Kevin moment. Like any other preliminary findings, the discovery means there's a lot of work to do before this can come to any form of realization. They have to test it further, determine formulations, toxicity, side effects, sourcing, synthesizing, dosing, administration, human trials, regulatory review, and so on. If you wonder why a small pill costs so much, I have simply brushed the surface of what goes on in the background to bring a product to market and make it safe for you to ingest or inject or whatever way you get it. No one likes cancer, and I am positive we can all consider it a victory for humankind when we find ways to fight and eliminate it. And I, for one, always get sentimental when eradicating a nemesis of the human race comes with the added benefit of repurposing something from the wonder of nature, our honeybees. I'll have an article link in the show notes to the original 
breast coverage. Honeybee venom rapidly kills aggressive breast cancer cells for episode number 180. Round table number two, call us when murder was the case. Officially, I think this is my first report of the giant Asian hornet. Yes, it's called the murder hornet in the press. The 2020 phenomena has been overreported, but I've come to change my thought. I've really kind of stayed away from it because I thought it was sensationalistic. However, what I know now is that it really is a problem. And I was hoping that I wasn't going to read that to be the case. There'd been things reported about the gigantic size of this hornet and how threatening it looks and whatever. But the fact is, unless it becomes entrenched, it's truly not a concern. And it was just a one-off incident. Now, I know that they've been tracking the appearance and existence of murder hornets. And as soon as they started talking about the probability that nests were in place, it becomes a real story for us here in the United States. It could literally mean the inception of another past threat to honeybees. Now, what I've heard over the summer is that through summer and early fall, scientists out there have been tracking them. And that to me meant they're there and then the race is on to see whether or not they can get them before they get established in nests. This past week, officials in Washington state were able to locate and eradicate a nest near Blaine, Washington. When I look at that on a map, it's way up there, almost to Canada. The giant hornets were spotted and captured. And then once the scientists were able to get them in captivity, hold them for a while, they tag them. As much as I hate to even talk about the probability of another pest coming ashore, and we were looking at trophy laylocks, in the case of this, at least it was cool to think about how they solved the problem. They put locator sensors on these hornets, and then they followed them using technology back to their nests. I look at it from a logistics standpoint and think, ironically, that things are favorable. Meaning the tracking probabilities, because the hornets are so big. There's quite a few options for tagging one with strong sensors that you can track. If I contrast that, for example, to how you could have done something like this to stop the spotter and lanternfly, no way. There's just no way you could have put a sensor on something, even though the spotter and lanternfly, which is now ravaging the mid-Atlantic region, um, it would have been harder. Heck, you, you could strap a bus to these hornets. They almost remind me of, eventually the world will get to army of drones. And if they were going to make micro drones and swarm some target by the thousands, this would be about the size they could use because they could carry some sort of payload. Ooh, where did I go with that? The article I read was from National Geographic, and the emphasis is that while this is a good victory, finding the nest and eradicating it, it's really only the first salvo. 
They have seen hornets outside of the region, the flying area of this particular nest that they captured. And what they have to do is find all traces of all hornets and get to all the nests before they emerge in the spring. Otherwise, it's going to be bad. In this particular case, the sting went down this way. The sting. You get it? Haha, <laughs> the sting. See what I did there? Scientists set traps with live bait and outfitted three females with radio frequency trackers. While the hornets are typically ground dwellers, this particular nest that they traced back to was settled into a tree on privately owned property. With permission from the homeowner, they did what was necessary to tear down the nest. When I first heard about this, I kind of thought perhaps it was sensationalism, but now that the nests have been established, the race is on. A single successful nest can produce a lot of workers to be sure, but it is the couple hundred queens that is really the concern. If we replay the timeline, the giant Asian hornets were first noticed in 2019, and then the lofty goal was to locate them before they can nest and breed. Fast forward to fall 2020, and it's evident that they eluded detection and actually built out some nests. Kind of figured if this happened, then we're certainly on notice as a watch, and we're going to be in trouble for the future. Not being terribly educated on the giant hornet, I would speculate that if they are nested, with those breeding dynamics, if they end up operational in the spring, even with concerted efforts, it could move past what can be controlled and become something that will add even more burden to honeybees. We knew two years ago, in parallel, talking about the spotted lanternfly, that it arrived in Pennsylvania and they were trying to prevent its spread and they were saying that they were if they were unsuccessful it was crossing the Delaware River into New Jersey earlier this year this spring in great abundance there's spotted lanternflies all over my yard everywhere when we were in the pool you look up and you know sometimes in the pool, we see bats flying overhead in the, in the twilight, catching. It looked like spotter and lanternflies. They're not great flyers, but they can fly tree to tree. And you could see them. Well, how are you going to stop spotter and lanternflies that are flying 40 foot above the canopy? You're not. In this case, how are you going to stop hundreds of queens when they emerge in the spring? So honestly, they have until February, probably. To get this under control and if the nests are settled and they're in the ground they're going to have to wait till spring and then they're going to have a super small window when the queens are emerging to get out and find them all i think what is rattling through my head is they need to have a campaign all winter telling people people that you need to watch for these things not, you know, with the spotter and lanternfly, they tried to ask us beekeepers to help because we're bug people. But they need general populace. And the one thing about a uh, giant Asian hornet is apparently they're not the fastest, greatest flyers. You could see them flying around because they're so big. They're noticeable. 
I know from listening to others, places where they have this problem, they stand around with badminton uh, mats. Yeah. They, slow down, Kevin. They stand around with badminton rackets and swat them out of the, out of the sky. So I'm not saying the homeowners should be out playing badminton in the backyard. What I'm saying is they should be reporting all instances. But then, of course, the scientists or researchers or whatever entomologists are going to need an army of people on call nonstop to go take care of this. Or the fact of the matter is you might as well consider 2020 the year of the giant Asian hornet. And in time, yeah, we're going to have them spread throughout the U.S. The thing that I would say about this that's been reported is the murder hornet tag is not, you know, sorry, we're going to think about the highest species human beings first. It's not that huge of a danger. Apparently, where murder hornets come from, I'm just going to use the term for a few minutes, um, a lot of people don't die from their stings. It's very unlikely to have large encounters with people. However, they can just decimate a honey beehive in super short order. And I want to plant this seed. Can you imagine if they disperse out of Washington and make their way into the almond orchards of California? Ah, the devastation potential is just amazing. If I were California entomologists, I'd be flying hordes of rescue teams up there to Washington for that on-call notice now and in February. Somebody should be mustering, as far as I'm concerned, to do whatever they can if this is truly getting entrenched. At minimum, we can take solace in the fact that with this first encounter with the nest, they've learned how to track them and they are developing new techniques. I saw the equipment they used. It looked really kind of cool. And here's to hoping that researchers and scientists can improve their methods and find the resources to get this under control. The clock is ticking, and I suspect that by next summer, we're going to have our evidence as to whether they'll be able to stop the spread or whether we're just going to fight this complicated war to the point where we either win or give up. For a link to the National Geographic article I referred to, see the show notes. Roundtable number three didn't mention this in the opening, but go throw it in here as the show develops. I call this one the sheath. That obviously means the order of the roundtables that I announced swapped around, but you could look in the show notes for times for when things start on any episode, so I think we're safe to proceed. I talked about my quest for the perfect hive tool holder in the last episode and asked listeners to send in any ideas or concepts if they had any. Robbie White replied with a double shot on the topic as he showed both a homemade hive tool sheath of his own design and a custom hive tool. The hive tool sheath is a simple design of stitched number eight duck cloth canvas that forms a pouch for his custom hive tool to nest in. The hive tool is a custom piece cut and ground out of some sort of stock material. 
The utility of the Hive tool holder is sheen washable or you can spot clean it with isopropyl alcohol for any small stains. Robbie ordered a bolt of cloth for some beekeeping activity and I guess he had some extra. And he showed the Hive tool uh, sheath and Hive tool itself laying on a bolt of cloth and I guess if it gets ratty you could simply fire up the sewing machine and fabricate another one. The design itself is a simple flat pouch, appropriately enough, it's homemade hive tool design with a simply flat hive tool. Most of us common beaks are used to a prototypical hive tool that has a curved blade on the end. I would describe Robbie's hive tool as more of what I associate with a European design. This might be my personal impression, but I always thought that the style I'm about to describe is more common in hive tools I see in use by European beekeepers. It's one that emulates some form of engineered hook on the end to pop a frame up. You hook it from underneath for the extraction of the frame, almost like if you could take your finger and go underneath and then pull up. His hive tool looks to be cut out of some hardened stock. It has a wide, flat blade for the hand to grasp, and then it's been tapered through grinding to give it a rounded shape and a profile. As said differently, it's worked and not simply a squared off stock material shank. The hook part has a long V-shaped taper where one side of the hive tool it's squared across the top with rounded corners. It comes down flat, and one side is flat all the way to the tip. The other one comes down partially flat and then angles in to form almost like a steep V shape. Do this. Hold one of your hands straight up with your palm facing left to right, not away or not at you. And then take your other hand and hold it up and put it at an angle facing left or right depending on which one that's what the shape looks like and you hold it at the angle so the bottom is narrower than the top at the bottom that v-shape curves to a hook to imagine the shape take your finger hold it straight up and now bend it at the first knuckle and give a little curve to it I really do think it looks like if you held your finger at a curve and went underneath and pulled up, it's that kind of, yeah. There's one last distinguishing feature about this tool. It has a special finish. Oh, I have to have a Kevin moment on this. The term special finish <laughs> has a certain connotation in our house. My wife's family has a penchant for some reason not to pay attention to cooking times. They have on occasion, through the years, made brownies, for example, and cooked them until they're cinders. I think there's nothing worse in this world than a brownie that's burned on the bottom. Inevitably, the pan comes out of the oven and someone yells out, The brownies have a special finish! <laughs> they don't want the kids to know that are in the house that they are burned on the bottom. And the funny thing is, on one such occasion, one of the boys spoke his mind and said, I'm not sure what this special finish is, but these brownies taste burnt. <laughs> oh, yeah. A hint of Kevin moment. This special finish seems Robbie's daughter has caught on to the 
hydro dipping craze. Have you seen this? And you know, um, who am I kidding? These are COVID times. How could you not have seen this? If you don't know what I'm talking about and live in a cave, it is when you distribute different paint colors in some form or pattern over water or liquid, and then you submerge whatever your substrate is, and you're painting it into the pattern that is not unlike maybe a tie-dye. It coats the piece in the different waves of whatever's floating on the water. I think I will associate hydro-dipping and epoxy coatings. You see these people pouring the tables and all that stuff over the wood? With the 2020 COVID phenomena. Phenomena. When I see what results, I cannot help but think, based on the colors and patterns, that his tool had kind of a native Indian artifact sensibility to it. The different colors and, and the way the patterns turned out. It, it's truly a cool piece to use. Coming back to the sheath itself, it looks like he has it sewn simply down one side. He folded over a piece of cloth, and then he has another piece folded up, and the hive tool just slides right in, and the sheath is tall enough to secure the entire hive tool, meaning the hive tool doesn't stick out at all. It's sewn up the left side all the way, and it's sewn on the right side up until the pocket that sits on the front where the hive tool nestles in uh, comes to an end. So there's a, a backing that is as tall as the entire hive tool. It looks to be about six, eight inches. And then there's a shorter part, four to six inches, and the hive tool nestles down in the flat pocket out in the front. There's no gap on the bottom. So it forms a, a flat pocket. Um, my guess is by the stitching that it was sewn by a sewing machine, but it could have been hand-sewn. It's hard to tell. And it's just an ivory-colored flat sackcloth kind of duck cloth. It, it looks, uh, you know, pretty simple. I, I don't know if the back of it has a loop that you hang off your belt or how that works, whether you tuck the whole thing into your pocket. But I could see one of the requirements I noticed was that if your hive tool gets dirty, gets honey on it, gets whatever, and you get stuff, like you said, it's washable, and I'm guessing you can rinse it out and let it dry, unlike leather. So, yeah, it's neat. And it's just, you know, you take a piece of cloth, you cut it out, you sew it up. It's very utility-looking and a, and a pretty simple, straightforward design. like it homesteader kind of thing not to say that that's what Robbie is but <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's uh, something that I think a, a normal person could do very simply so yeah cool design yeah I love this kind of feedback so thanks for that Robbie um, if you have any ideas still looking for it I'm gearing up for my winter project I was discussing with Bob Kloss the winter projects. I still want to make my fish tank hive. I'm looking into building a new form of observation hive, one that I saw online. And I'm uh, working on a couple other things. 
trying to plan my winter projects while the bees are nestled snug in their bug rug. Okay, end of that roundtable. Let's move on. Roundtable number four, I call this Clearing Honey Supers with a Surprise. I've discovered a new technique. Actually, it's more like I stumbled upon it, and I thought I would share. I think about how the stars align, as it's only due to the setup I have in my yard that brought the right circumstances into play for me to discover this. While recounting the encounter, I'm going to share this new-to-me technique and also share a surprise bonus experience that happened along the way. This summer when I was shooting the How to Harvest Honey video, I was carrying a full 10-frame medium honey super loaded with bees to my hive bench. As I was heading to the bench, I stumbled due to the pesky vestiges of a tree stump that I bemoaned about in past episodes. And the result was that I somewhat dropped the honey super down on the bench, about four to six inches, and it hit with a definitive thump. As soon as it hit the bench, the bees inside buzzed loudly in protest, and a large contingent of them emerged to the top of the frames and took to the air. It dawned on me in that moment that there was going to be a beating coming, but the fact of the matter is they simply flew off and gathered at the entrance of the hive and went back inside. I observed in that moment, realizing that it was fortunate for me, that they ignored me altogether, which frankly was good because at the time I was only wearing a veil and a short sleeve shirt and shorts. I continued on with the task, placing a fume board on the full-size colony hive, waiting for it to do its thing. While reflecting on what happened, I started to inspect the box on the bench and realized that hmm, quite a few bees left that super. Call it curiosity or stupidity, but an idea formed. <laughs> and to satisfy my curiosity, I purposely picked up the medium and this time banged it on the bench on purpose. The result? I ran screaming back to the house with a cloud of bees and... No, I, I'm really only kidding. <laughs> In reality, more bees immediately took flight and just like before came to the surface and exited the box. It's an interesting observation, and I'd like to tell you that I carried this on, but the fact is, my task at that moment was to film the segment of removing bees with a fume board for that feature that I was shooting. And the funny thing is, I really needed bees in that box for the video shoot, so I didn't go any further. It did, however, locked what I observed in my memory vault. Now fast forward to October, and I found myself looking at reducing a hive to two deeps. I don't like to overwinter colonies with full honey supers over the brood nest. I was taking the honey supers off, planning to, and I recalled the experience and decided to do an experiment to see if I could reproduce the situation to clear the bees. I took the first of two medium supers off the hive, set it on the bench, and then proceeded to take one end up and let it go, resulting in it crashing back to the bench. Voila! The same thing happened. I repeated this motion over and over with periodic pauses, and after about 10 drops, 
95 to 98 percent of the box was empty of bees. It did look like they were all disturbed by the banging. And the first thing they had in mind was exiting the box and going back to the hive. I was fully suited, gloves, bee jacket, whatever for the experiment, but I'm happy to say not one menacing bee took issue with what I did. They just simply went back to the origin hive. I took the second honey box off of the brood chamber. So there were two deeps and a honey box left. I took that top honey box off and looked to see if I could repeat the process with that box. I did notice that that box had about half to three quarter as many bees inside. So I wrapped and wrapped the box, watching the bees leave in the process and reveling in the notion of how well it was working when an unexpected surprise occurred. Wait for it. I bet you figured it out. Who should appear at the top of the frames but the queen? Apparently, and unbeknownst to me, she was in the honey super for some reason. I know that to be odd because there's no brood in that honey box. But alas, there she was. Now, I wasn't going to rely on her flying back to the hive, so I decided to kill two birds with one stone. The queen wasn't marked, so I quickly changed gears dove into my kit, took out a queen marking device, and proceeded to load her in and give her a blue paint job. When her paint job was dry, I took her to the entrance of the hive and set it down on the landing board, but she decided, instead of walking to the landing board, she took a left turn and dropped to the grass in front of the hive. Like anyone else, I had that momentary glimpse of her taking wing and flying away, but I was right there and immediately scooped her up and placed her directly at the entrance to the hive, facing the gap. She walked out, did a circle or two, and then just turned tail and walked right past the guards and into the hive. They didn't even check her. Note to self, queen could be in the honey super. Don't forget that. Undeterred, I went back to commence my experiment and bang the box about five or six more times, and lo and behold, when I peered between the frames to see the result, the box was 99% empty. This was really just completely successful and every bit as effective, possibly even more, than a fume board. I don't like to leave a single bee behind. So I pulled each of the frames, and with a brush I flicked off any stragglers and placed the box under cover on a cart. I swear most of the errant bees still on the honey frames were bees that were flying around and simply came back to land on the top bars and walk down into the super. And thinking back, when I did this I had the hive bench sitting alongside the hive and in proximity of the entrance and returning foragers. I envisioned that when I purposely go to do this again I would set the hive bench well behind the hive and ensure the supers are away from the entrance to negate any foragers thinking it's a good idea to land on the box and take a rest when they're coming back with their loads. So surprise notwithstanding, a new and interesting way to clear a honey super. I'm not sure that this will supersede my preference for a fume board when I'm doing a bunch of hives, which is my go-to method, but honestly if I were only doing a single honey super or one hive or whatever, I might give this method a go. 
still processing the pros and cons of what I've learned. And I wanted to share it with you. I'm mulling over any thoughts of banging bees and if there's any negative consequence. In thinking about it, I routinely bang on frames to dislodge bees. Meaning, I pull the frame out and when I want to get the bees off, I hold it vertically, take my hand and I wrap on top of the frame and it bangs the bees off. I don't see why this is any different. What I did notice or was concerned about are where the bees going out the bottom trying to escape and not coming up to the top. But I could say that I did not squish a single bee in the process, so that doesn't seem to be a concern. So as you can tell, I'm still evaluating any facets of this and contemplating if the technique is something I should consider using in my practice. While thinking about this technique for the retelling, I did come back to the point in my brain, the little voice reminded me, hey, you know that video you made? There was one part of it concerning using a blower to remove bees from a honey super. I kind of dodged the topic because I've never done that. But this uh, recollection reminded me that you know, I think this winter I'm going to ask Santa for a cordless blower that utilizes my power tool battery packs. I tried one of the battery-operated blowers, leaf blowers, at my twin's house when I was visiting him. And I think it'd be really kind of suitable for blowing bees out of a honey super. What was interesting is as you press the trigger, you could vary the amount of force on my gas one, you could do that, but usually when you turn it on, it's an Uber blower and it just is like gale force winds. I think the key to this one is battery power, both in the amount of power that's going to come out, meaning force from the wind, and it's not going to taint anything in the honey box with byproducts of a gasoline engine exhaust. I can't imagine using a two-cycle blower for the task of clearing a honey super, which I've seen online, by the way. As if you think about it, if you ever use one of them, you smell like oil after being exposed to the exhaust. And that's just simply from a trip blown off the driveway. So coming back to the banging, a new, to me at least, technique for clearing bees. Let me know if you knew of this and if you use it, or if you have any considerations that I haven't thought of. Kevin at bkcorner.org is my email address if you want to share some impressions. Roundtable number five. I call this one You're in the Money. When it comes to either science or curiosity, I guess I'm not bashful about the places I'll go on the show. I always keep it tasteful, but case in point, I've been pondering this question of the universe, and I'm strangely going to make the connection to beekeeping. Give me some time here for this one. So here's the topic. It's a common practice in the world to use a chemical application to your landscape to deter animals from coming into certain spaces. The illustrative thing that I could use as a benchmark example is that when Tiger, my bee cat, has kept our deer that live in and amongst our property at bay in our yard simply by his presence and his biological practice of marking the land with his urine. 
okay, <laughs> when I said you're in the money, now you know where I was going. <laughs> I said the word so now I could use it liberally to get this thing off that's running around in my brain. Power of observation. When I walk the dog, I watch her sniff and smell her way around. What amazes me is I personally could see a squirrel walking in the yard in the morning. And then at lunchtime, when I take the dog out, I could observe her following the exact tracks of the squirrel, even though it was hours earlier. It shows that animal odors are an amazing attractant, and they can also be an amazing deterrent. Where there's a yang, there's a yang. Specifically, if you did not know this, you can go online today and buy urine from a reseller to distribute on your property to market for boundary purposes. No, I'm not making this up. If you go online right now, you can see that you could buy a product to distribute on your property for the purpose of deterring coyotes from eating your cats. Now, we don't have a huge coyote problem here in our central New Jersey neighborhood, but we do have deer and rabbits and skunks and other critters around. And the fact is, other types of urine beyond wolf urine, can be purchased or obtained and used in that same manner. I'm wondering, what, what the heck is this topic? While we do not have coyotes around, we do have large herds of deer on the property every day. And if it were not for the dog and the cat, they would literally be on the backyard patio having burgers with us, as they have little fear of coming close to the house. As it is, when they are hungry in the deep of the winter, they'll come right down and eat the bushes a few feet from the back door. As to our bee yard, the deer have a path right along the cornfield and they literally bed down in the shrubs and bushes alongside the apiary. It's not uncommon for me to walk out and stand face to face with a deer that's banging its hoof on the ground trying to warn me to go away, or they go booking through the cornfield or they come running out of the bushes next to me and scare the bejesus out of me. So an odd topic to discuss, but this is what inquiring minds want to know. If you don't want to go online and purchase urine deterrents, and who knows why you would concern yourself with placing that order in your cart, <laughs> could you use the ultimate predator's urine which you have in great abundance? Back to my Jeff Goldblum reference from the Big Chill. That's a great thing about the outdoors. It's one giant toilet. So, if you had unwanted predators, could you spend a little voodoo juice around the yard to keep them out? Ah, uh, finally to the point. I have read things that are both pro and con about the tactic. Some say it really works, and others say it's simply a myth and not effective. So, give yourself a pass on collecting human urine and pouring it around your yard. I have a Kevin moment. Our apiary is kind of off the beaten track. If I decided to relieve myself, and even if Sharon had the notion, <laughs> there's a high probability that we could get away with it unnoticed. Now, I picture so many of the bee yards that I have visited to mentors and other things, and I would think that 95% of them would make for quite an interesting situation. La -di -di -da -da -da. Oh neighbor, don't remind me. I'm, you know, 
spraying a little best to turn around. Yeah, I don't think that's an opportunity for a lot of us to do it in the raw, if you would, and if Kevin moment. So other schools of thought are that most critters are low on the food chain, and if they freaked out at the encounter of every occurrence of a marked spot by a predator, they'd live a pretty anxious life. Yeah, so I'm not convinced that if you either collected it and poured it or went on natural, you would make any appreciable difference. I have a new problem in the yard this year. Moles, or voles, or yeah, maybe it's chipmunks. I don't know, but something's digging in my apiary. There are little tunnels literally everywhere in the whole bee yard. When I walk around my hives, the ground is soft, and I'm collapsing whatever is underfoot. In one spot between pads two and three, there's a large ankle-twisting hole that has formed. I spent 20 minutes the other day walking around tamping down tunnels that are just under the turf with the notion that maybe if I collapsed them from end to end, whatever's in there might get discouraged and go elsewhere. My recommendation to you is um, don't do that. I came back later and they simply seem to have dug alternative routes and now I have even more soft tunnels underfoot. So realistically, would a urine pest determinant poured around the perimeter of the bee yard have an impact? I, I'm, I really meant that this was an interesting topic for beekeeping. Hard to say. Now, I'm betting that it would be more effective as determinant prior to an infestation and less impactful if you have what I already have going on. They're nested underground. As I think back to the years of my apiary, I remember a time when there was a large groundhog hole underneath my metal platform that I use. When I originally built the yard, it was covered brush, four foot high. I cut it all back. I mowed what was there, and eventually I planted some grass to try and get a yard, a bee yard that we would all recognize. Now, it was woods, and there was a groundhog there. And... For years, I tried to get that critter to move out and claim the ground. The ground would settle, I'd fill in the hole. The ground would settle, I'd fill in the hole. The groundhog would move, I'd fill in the hole. I guess in time, he or she got frustrated with having to dig themselves out every time, and they did eventually move along, and then when I filled in the hole, they stopped collapsing in, like a sinkhole. I thought of this topic kind of half-heartedly, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but as you can see, it's a real question. And if this approach works, might it become something to consider around a bee yard where you're out in the woods or in a field somewhere? Because actually a lot of us keep apiaries out in wonder, in nature. Now there's just as many of us that have them on a balcony or in our backyard where the grass is mowed and things like that. I bet you didn't see this coming when you fired up the show today, but I'll put this question to you. What side of the fence are you on? <laughs> is urine a viable deterrent or is it a bust? Inquiring minds want to know. Now look, it's really a tangential question as it relates to beekeeping. Like I said, the deer walk through the bee yard almost daily at our house. 
I have cameras in the bee yard and the deer show up on them more times than I can count. The thing is, however, I did have a deer or two on different occasions decide over the years that the hive might make a good scratching post, rub up against them enough to knock them over. Uh, twice in 12 years is not enough to be terribly concerned, but you know, while I watched the dog follow the scent that day, this is the notion of all things that popped in my head, and now you've heard the whole scenario that played out while I walked that day. Maybe this is too much information. <laughs> if you really want to answer the question, feel free to shoot me your vote. If I get enough answers, I'll return the results of the poll. Kevin at bkcorner.org is where you can reach me. Roundtable number six, last one for the show. Call this one Tom Agrees. This past week, I sat in a virtual presentation of Darwinian beekeeping by Dr. Tom Seeley. Dr. Seeley spoke at the Carroll County, Maryland beekeepers meeting, and I made it a point to join the association recently and was fortunate enough, timing-wise, to take in this session. As Russ Sprangle says, Thomas freaking Seeley! exclamation, exclamation, in his email when he let me know that they were able to secure Tom for the discussion. Yeah, Kevin moment. I have to start with a quick aside. I love and appreciate Dr. Seeley. He deserves to be called Dr. Seeley. But because I also feel like he's personable, approachable, and not pretentious in any way, I can't help but refer to him as Tom. In a way, it seems to be that way with so many beekeeping researchers, so I don't think I'm out of bounds with this. David Tarpey is Dr. David Tarpey, but to me, he's Dave. Again, it's because he seems so simply down to earth and would probably tell you to knock it off with the Dr. Tarpey stuff if you were out in the field working bees with him. I'm surmising that. I don't know that to be true, but I guess the key to saying this, and I could go on, is that I'm going to call him Tom and stay away from the doctor title. It's crystal clear that he's earned the right to be called Dr. Seeley, but I feel it's fatiguing for you to listen to someone say, Dr. Seeley this and Dr. Seeley that, so please excuse the presentation of just calling him Tom. End of Kevin moment. I could not agree more with the Thomas freaking Seeley sentiment, by the way. <laughs> I think when I'm old and wrinkled, I will be able to say to newbies that yes, we saw Tom present live in his day before he retired, and wonder will abound. I say all the time, could you imagine if you could rewind the clock and meet Darwin, Vaughn Frisch, Langstroth, or any choice of the notables? Yeah, feels that prophetic to have the opportunity to see Dr. Seeley speak, either in person or through Zoom, whatever it may be. So Tom provided his talk on Darwinian beekeeping. And I will say that I have saw Tom give this presentation, what I'll call an earlier version of it, one year at EAS. In that moment, the EAS moment, I had just taken my written exam and I knew it didn't do well. I was really in a funk. And I could say that while I was there, I really wasn't present. 
Still, I remember the moment, and actually, if I think back, I have a terrible recording of it from a GoPro that I took out and put on the counter because I simply wasn't paying attention and thought maybe I would watch it later. The bad news is the GoPro video just was awful, not watchable. So while I did not recall the premise of that talk, I have a more memorable moment about that day. This is a Kevin moment. I'm going to take a little sidebar. This is why this is so vivid, that EAS thing. After Tom finished, I approached him on stage and asked him if he would care to partner for recording an audiobook of Honeybee Democracy. I, in anticipation of getting the chance to see Tom and possibly talk to him because I knew he was presenting, recorded prior to the EAS conference a personal just like I'm recording now, recording of the first chapter of Honeybee Democracy. I had planned to inquire with him if he would consider making an audiobook, and if he had not, might he consider doing it with me, because I would love to see if we can make an arrangement. I spent a few minutes telling him of my experiences in broadcasting and other things, and you know, he had all these people right in front of him, ready to ask him questions after his presentation, but I could see the gears turning in his head. I honestly had the impression that he had never considered it, and he seemed genuinely intrigued, so much so that while other people wanted to ask him something of his presentation, he kept asking me how this audiobook thing worked. How do people get access to it? Are there other presentations like that out there, books on beekeeping and such? Now, of course... <laughs> The audiobook is out there, you can listen to it right now. And uh, no, I'm not the voice artist. My guess is he went back to his publisher and some person who did not hear my pitch likely followed some industry path to get the recording done. I know this, of course, because I've listened to that audiobook on Audible. Some TV star who reads audiobooks drew the assignment, and he did an okay job. But given what I know, I personally think I could have done a better job because I know the topic. I would have understood different places for inflection on salient points. Ah, reminiscing about what could have been, but I'm off on a tangent. End of that Kevin moment. Darwinian beekeeping. This presentation, I did my best to pay attention. It's the end of a work day. My brain was oozing out of my ears, but I wanted to hear what Tom had to say and see if I could soak it in. Tom overviewed his well-known history with the Arnott Forest, and then he disclosed some of his fundamental understandings of how bees organize themselves in the wild. He spoke of conventional beekeeping practices of normal beekeepers and points of keeping bees in Langstroth hives, comparing and contrasting along the way how they differ. At the core of many beekeeping practices are honey yields, how much honey can we get, survivability, trying to get our bees to overwinter, and of course, varroa mites. So Dr. Seeley ran through the pros and cons of natural, what they do out in the world, versus nurture, and made a case for where the things are stronger, hence Darwinian beekeeping, harking back to the natural way is a better way. I am completely summarizing what he professed. I would give you a tip after I get through this, but... If I think about the fundamentals of how bees live in nature, the points he called out seemed relevant. Natural nests find a balance of distance between themselves. We, 
beekeepers place our hives side by side on a hive stand. As such, one of the things that happens is our hives promote drift, and natural hives are not likely to be subject to this as much as ours are. Natural hives have smaller chambers. He said it's about one deep box volume in size. We keep our hives in two deeps and put mediums on top of that for even more honey collection. Natural hives swarm. We, of course, prevent ours from doing so. I don't recall him talking about this, but I'm going to say it out loud. When a hive dies in nature, wax moths clean up the comb. We beekeepers reuse our combs. And bees living in trees benefit from the tree's insulation. The thicker substrate is superior to the relatively thin walls we use in our Langstroth hives in contrast. There were a few points in Tom's talk that I found surprising. Tom said he never feeds. Now when we watch this presentation, as we often do, Bob Kloss and I always go to things together. And in this COVID world, we have come into a practice where we sit in a chat program where we can talk to each other called Discord. So Bob and I watched this presentation together. He was on Discord and we could talk independently of what Tom was presenting to each other. We touched here and there, but when you're in that forum, you generally try not to talk over what Tom's talking about other than, hey, did you hear that? We should talk about that. So it had so happens this weekend, we both decided we wanted to get out of the house. We were going stir crazy. And in our doldrums, we made a plan to go hike. I know from experimentation that if you do not feed bees, they will likely not make it. And Bob and I discussed that dynamic on our hike and came to the point that they really do need food in reserve for winter. And there's no guarantees that a hive out in nature will amass that much on their own like they do with us in a managed colony. In discussing how it works, we found a plausible rationale, though, as to why it works. I want you to consider for a moment that our hives need, in the mid-Atlantic region of New Jersey, 60 to 80 pounds to overwinter for a force of somewhere around 30,000 bees. That's a lot of mouths to feed and a lot of work for a colony to accomplish. In optimal situations, a larger hive can put it in if they have the right workforce and access to the forage. Contrast that with a single-sized colony. They don't have as many mouths to feed, and in short, they have the same access to forage as the big hive. So chances are, whatever nature provides, it's more than adequate for a small colony living in a smaller chamber versus a, a larger colony that has one shot at it. Hopefully it's going to get whatever it has. And I think if you add that formula up, you figure out why sometimes we need to feed because nature didn't provide enough for the booming colony, but they'll always likely be a ratio enough to feed the smaller one. All this harkens back to a balance. Wider spacing, less resource requirement, meaning forage, and other elements are nature's equation to get a balance. 
And our industrial style of beekeeping that engineer is bigger is better is not actually in harmony if you're settling in on what Tom's saying. There was one other surprise that turned up for both of us and what Tom talked about and is that he's actually insulating his hives all year long. He's not insulating for winter. He's insulating them all year long. If I heard that right, that's what I heard. And he discussed that he's using poly insulation on his colonies. And he started to touch on the thermal dynamics for winter and summer and why he wasn't concerned about, you know, the way that that was going to work. Now, I know that that's a huge interest to a lot of beekeepers who listen to the show. They always want to know that stuff. I'm, I'm going to say to you, sorry, I'm not going to go into a sidebar about it, but I can sum up what he landed on is to his way of thinking, this is an optimal setup and it addresses the thickness of the substrate that is missing from not being in a tree. Along the way, in the magic slide for me personally, was he showed a six deep frame, deep high body with insulation. It wasn't a five frame nuke, it wasn't a 10 frame nuke, or a 10 frame conventional Langstroth box. It was a six frame box using deep frames. I gotta take pause at that. I may have been distracted the first time at that EAS meeting a few years ago, but I was plugged in this time, and I don't recall that aspect of his talk before. Six frames and insulated. How about that? I say, how about that? I say that with excitement because, if you've been following my progress, I have in parallel been systematically changing over my operation to, drumroll, six frame polystyrene nuke boxes designed by B-Box out of Finland. I joke through my latest conversation with Bob that Tom and I agree. <laughs> yeah, call it serendipity, but I have seen, with a nod to irony, that I will talk about in the local hive report how well my polystyrene 10-frame hive does, but surmised in evaluating that form factor that the smaller version of it would be a better idea. And lo and behold, it, it provides more utility meaning a smaller box, and a more suitable weight ratio for me moving boxes around. I think I will reserve my soliloquy on my evolution to six-frame polys for another show, but honestly, that one slide made my night, and it resulted in a little sparkle in my eye, a little teardrop. Darwinian beekeeping, it's an interesting talk, and if you ever get the chance, you should take it in. To my way of thinking, that's an easy thing to do. Just search on it for YouTube, as Tom's given it a number of times. And I know there's a few variations of that talk over the years out there that have been recorded available on YouTube. So I won't give you a specific link. Just go to YouTube and search up Darwinian Beekeeping from Dr. Tom Seeley, and you'll find different versions. I would say look for the latest one because I do know that Tom seems to be updating them as he evolves. Dr. Thomas freaking Seely, Yeah, all day long. <laughs> Thanks to Carroll County for making that possible. And if you're not a member of a bee club where you are, or you have the opportunity in these COVID times to take in some others work where they have extra capacity, 
You're missing out. You should be doing that. As I think about the way the show progresses, an hour and something into it, I actually had a topic prepared, but I defer that. I'll bring that back for 181. Before I close the show, though, I want to go into the local high report. So, to the local high report we go. I've been coming to terms reflecting on how this particular beekeeping season has progressed. I currently have seven hives in the yard. I really hoped that I would have at least eight going into winter. And I suppose I should call out that some of the hives are actually nukes, not full-size colonies like most people count their hives, but I'll talk about that to a moment. In my mind, they're a little bit different. So dashing through the latest rundown, pad one, the grain scale hive, it's an all-medium hive. It's three mediums high. It started as a requeened split from the bees that came from the nasty gateway hive that I've talked about so much this spring and summer. The hive's temperament seems fine. Bees are doing a reasonable job at getting to winter strength. Nothing to see here other than just final top-offs and prep. Pad 2 is the 5 over 5 over 5 nucleus box. I call this the Valley Crest Hive because it has its origins from there. The hive last I checked on it is booming and has a reasonable stores going into winter. I do plan to make a change with this hive before October ends and I'll speak to more of that when I get to other activities going on in the garage at the end of the local hive report. Pad 3 is a 4 deep 6 frame polystyrene hive. This hive started from the cast-offs of the top bar hive-building nuke employed earlier in the year. The description is a little wonky, so to be clear, it's a six-frame polystyrene box over a six-frame, over a six-frame, over a six-frame. It's four deeps, six frames. The hive is being fed, but it has reasonable stores and bees heading into winter, and I'm pretty optimistic about this one and I just can't wait to see how it fares this winter and dreaming of what it will look like in the spring. Again, a bit more on that later in the report. Pad four right now is currently empty. Pad five is a two deep Langstroth hive format. I call it the cedar hive because the boxes are uh, made of cedar. This is the hive that was dipped in wax in the spring and as such, I plan to leave it naked going into winter. The last few years, I've taken to insulating my Langstroth boxes, but this year, because this one's been waxed, I'm going to leave it all natural. I checked this box two weeks ago, and there's easily 80 to 90 pounds of honey on top. And it doesn't need to be fed. I recently put an entrance reducer on it to prep it for winter, and it's ready to go. Pad number six is the Lane's Hive. I have not looked into this hive for a month, and I think I only checked it twice this year. The only thing that could be going on is it could have mite problems. I don't know. I didn't monitor it. I treated it earlier with uh, Formic because other hives that I checked in the yard had mite levels. So I treated everything, including this hive. 
and I've had some mite problems this summer, same deal. And I'm treating it right now with Apivar. It has a couple Apivar strips in it. I think it's loaded with bees last I looked at it. And it certainly has good reserves for winter. And this box is made of two inch thick wood substrate. So no need to insulate it. You sometimes uh, with experience come to learn what a hive looks like by what's coming and going at the entrance. There's still a lot of pollen going in, which means the queen's probably brooding up her winter forces nicely. At least that's what I'm imagining. And honestly, I think this hive is going to be fine to overwinter. And we'll find out come February. Pad 7. This was uh, 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 the polystyrene hive, the full-size one, 10 frames. I'm gutted to report that this hive even after being treated with Formic earlier this year and being treated subsequently after mite chicks with Apivar succumbed to mites and it recently absconded due to mite pressure. One more time, I'll say, <laughs> we're going to stick a pin in this one. I want to come back to that topic in a moment because I have some ideas. But suffice it to say, I broke down the hive, pulled it into the garage, and it's such a disappointment to me and a check in the failure column for this beekeeping season that this hive didn't make it through to winter. Pad 8, the final pad, has my top bar in operation. I think the population of this hive is moderate. They have what they have. I spent some time insulating this hive. And, uh, you know, as I think about this hive, which I built custom, I built it out of old flooring. Someone put in an oak floor and they had excess pieces, tongue and groove. I think it's half inch or almost three quarter, but it's not full three quarter. And when I built this hive, I gave it a screen floor. So I obviously closed the screen floor off so no air is going through because it's cold now. We've had a good run in October. I haven't talked about the weather. The weather has been unseasonably warm, 70 sometimes 80 degree days in October, which is crazy. And the highs um, have converted to a low of 50s and 60s at night. This past Sunday, meaning yesterday, winter finally arrived, or fall, I should say. We're having highs of 60s, and some of the lows are going to be in the 30s. And if you're going to close up your screen bottom boards and put your entrance reducers and all that thing, Hopefully on that Saturday, like I did, when the weather was still 70 degrees, the last one probably, you went through and took care of all that. Uh, I think this hive could have used more bees, and I'm still feeding it to try and bulk it up, but they have what they have, and I'm cautiously optimistic that it has a good shot at making through the winter. The best shot this hive has ever had. I've tried two other times and could never get it filled out, and I think it's probably three quarters filled with comb. And I'm pretty happy with where it is. So it's insulated on the bottom, it's insulated on the sides, and it's insulated on the end caps, and the roof itself is insulated. So even though the substrate is a little thin, they got an extra oomph from the insulation I put on. Last but not least, actually, there's another poly on the metal stand that sits behind the pads. 
This was, if you were keeping score from previous episodes, two polynukes. But the one queen never amounted to anything, and last week, I did what you should do. Combine the strong hive and the weak hive together and just make one hive instead of trying to nurse a dink. I did a paper combine and put the weak nuke over the strong nuke, and then gave it a week in and made sure that um, they combined nicely, and now they have three six-frame polyboxes and a reasonable number of bees as we head into November. I like the way the hive is situated. Our goldenrod season in Astors is pretty much over. Everything dried up a few weeks back, and I am now taking measures to feed. I've been admittedly somewhat lazy about feeding. I mean, I've fed 50 pounds of sugar so far this summer just to get them through the dearth. But I think I can give all of the hives a little bit more before they are considered fat and heavy. I'm really going to get with the program this week and the next couple of weeks and feed the colonies well. As soon it's going to be too cold to use the top feeders. And I don't want to do any of that fondant or emergency feeding in the spring. So the short answer is I need to get with the program. And make no mistake, that little voice in my head is nagging me nonstop. That until it gets cold, I should be feeding consistently. I don't think my hives are in dire straits, but to be clear, I have feeders on pad one, two, three, on the top bar, and on the hive that sits on the metal stand. So yeah, they're all going to need a little more love in the next two to three weeks. Now, I had some footnotes to come back to. Let me get to them. First off, the five over five over five wooden nuke. I've been building boxes in the garage for the past few weeks. I placed a third order for more six-frame polystyrene, polystyrene nukes, and I'm currently in the tail end of painting and gluing them together. Specifically, and one management thing I have left to do this season is to take that 15 frames in the woodenware and move it to the three six-frame boxes. Either I'm going to collapse this 15 frames to 12 good frames and use two boxes, or if I like what I see, that all the frames in that hot are really contributing to the overall program, I'm probably going to pad them out with three additional hives that I have in reserve to make it an 18-frame stack. Ideally, I'd like to do that. I'd like to keep them 15 frames and add three honey frames that I have in reserve. So I've been working hard to get those boxes done, glued together, and do the swap while there's still reasonable weather to do this. And then in time, continue to feed that box more two-to-one solution to fill out those extra frames that I'm adding if that's what's required. But again, I think I have, if I look in my stash, a couple frames that I pulled out. I, I lost the, the polystyrene hive, and it had some honey in it. As for the poly nuke on the metal stand, I have a plan to move that to the empty pad 3 site when the weather turns cold. For now, when I go out there, they're actively foraging during the day. But when winter sets in and they're on the cluster, my thought is that's when I'm going to move them to the conventional stand. And that will be their new home base. 
I think you can gather by the mentions in this episode that I'm kind of making conversion to polyhides. Had a notion for doing this for a while, that this is the year that I'm making a bigger push. Originally I had ideas of going to 10 frame poly, but in the past mm, summer, I think, Doug Potter introduced me to the six frame variation of the hive that I have, and now I'm convinced that it's the right direction to go. Now, saying that, it seems ironic to disclose that I took down my polyframe, my 10-frame poly, styrene hive, after a failure. And this is the observation I wanted to come back to. I now consider it a plausible pattern that for two years in a row, my most prolific hive has been my 10-frame poly hive. It had a huge population in the spring. It was my best honey producer. Actually, that hive has been my best honey producer four years in a row. And you could see why I would like the hive form factor, yet there's a dark side to all of this success. And this year, given another round of experience with it, it confirms the suspicion that I've been having so much lately that I'm going to share this finding and then watch it from now on. I'm talking about the super hive phenomenon. I made that name up, super hive phenomenon. I've observed and made reference that a super booming hive will be the most susceptible to mite pressures. The reason is almost obvious. The bees are so prolific that they are mite factories too. And unfortunately, the population inside those colonies overcomes the ability for the treatments to be effective. That's my initial hypothesis. I couple this with another new finding that I think has merit. We hear and are told that Formic Pro will penetrate the cappings and kill mites. I specifically used Formic Pro this year because I knew that I've had a super hive phenomena. It was full. So I have a question now in my brain. I'm going to put it to you. Is that true? Is Formic effective at getting the mites inside the capped cells? Now, I don't mean to say that the manufacturer claims are false. But is it true in a way that you and I want it to be true? Think of this. What percentage, take a guess, does it penetrate? We're all thinking that 100% of the cells that are capped, 100% are gassed out with formic, and all those nasty varroa mites can't hide, they're eradicated. Now ask yourself, just because we want that to be true, is it true? What if it's not true? What if it only gets under 50% of the capping and it can't get through some of the rest? I see frames in these super hive phenomena, booming hives, with five, six, sometimes seven frames of two-sided cap brood, carpets of brood. That's what I saw in this hive this spring. And as such, think about the potential for the number of mites that are under those cappings. 
Doesn't matter what you use if you're trying to use Apivar, you're so outmoded in an Apivar treatment, which is why I've been switching in my brain to Formic because I'm thinking that'll do it with that type of hive. I'm going to let you mull on that for a moment. There's another consideration. In these gigantic hives, every frame, at least mine was, every frame is covered with bees. Every side, every inch. You couldn't drop a dime and hit comb. Question. Does the formic vapors get through the bees in that level of density and then through the cappings? I start thinking about all these things to wonder why the treatment wasn't effective after it was finished. And then you start to think about plausible reasons, kinks in the armor. I've been contemplating these notions because of my experiences and because of other experiences that beekeepers have been relaying to me. And because I'm tuned into this, I started paying attention. If you encounter a lot of different beekeepers, how many of them said, I can't understand it. My hive died. My hive absconded. I'm scratching my head because you know what? It was my strongest hive. I hear it over and over and over again with my club and the people I come into contact with. So here I am. I'm saying this out loud to you. I don't want to bias your way of thinking, but I want to ask you to keep your ears to the ground. Were the mite loads high? Yes, they were high. I put an apivar in the hive after the formic treatment, but the hive showed a shotgun brood pattern, and I'm finding bees with deformed wing all over the place. That original treatment just didn't knock it back enough. I think given my experience with this matter, two years in a row, I'm not going to fall in this trap again. I'm going to make it a point during a nectar flow to identify my strongest hive, and you know what? I'm going to split it. Split it like there's no remorse whatsoever. I'm going to force one of those splits to be breedless for a while, and I'm going to take the other one with the queen and some of her population, and I'm going to monitor the mites and treat the smaller population and break up that brood nest so there isn't so much cap brood and see if I can get an effective treatment if it requires it. So that's what I'm thinking. And you know what? I have till probably April or May 2021 to keep chewing on this idea. And I'm going to come full circle. You know the perfect utility to do that split? And to raise queens? I'm going to take them into a six-frame poly nuke because I happen to have some at my disposal. If this goes the way I think it will, I'm going to sound like a broken record after next year about these six framers. Time and experience will tell. So the other thing that I touched upon here is not for nothing. I know that I'm not looking at a big insulation of hives this year like I did last year. That was a pain. I insulated my top bar. I might consider doing the all-medium hive, but that's it. And insulating is not a chore I've come to love. So chalk up the polystyrene hives as another bonus when it comes to that. So one last thing to mention before closing down the LHR. 
I stopped over my twin Keith's house a few weeks back and placed a formic treatment in his colony. I was going there in advance of going racing with the team, really have much time to monitor their hive, and I'll admit that I just proactively treated that hive. It equally has a huge amount of bees, tons and tons of stores. I hope it wasn't loaded with mites, and I hope nothing bad happened to the queen with that treatment. It's always a risk, but you know, it was comfortable 70 degree days, not high temp for formic. It was actually perfect. And I think that hive, which started from split has done supremely well this season and is uh, already viable for winter. So I, unless something bad went wrong with that treatment, it should do really well going into winter. I had planned to talk about some of the garage work I've been doing, but given how long this check-in is going, I think I'm going to bring that to the next show. Local Hive Report, check. i just share a couple closing comments to wrap up the episode. A few things to wrap up since all the roundtables are passed. I bought a camera. Sitting right here next to me, 4K Panasonic HC-WX F991 camcorder. It's the one I had my eye on. I want to take a moment and say thanks to anyone who donated to the cause. And ironically, <laughs> the season is closing down. There's no meetings to film or things like that, but you can be assured that uh, when spring comes, I'm going to be super excited to put that thing into use and get out there in the yard and uh, start shooting video again with a, a good piece to work with. We all find our things to do in these COVID times. I wanted to just share a personal note that I'm broadcasting and racing again. If you've listened long enough, you know that I switched from eSports, that's what they call it these days, uh, internet broadcasting to do the podcast. Back in my day, I used to do, I worked for a company called RLM TV that uh, did, it was way ahead of its times, eSports broadcasting of sim racing. The people from Vidane TV hunted me down over the last couple of years and kept asking me to come back and become a broadcaster again. And I finally broke down. And on Tuesday and Thursday nights, Vidane TV uh, shows for different leagues I've been broadcasting. I'm rusty as could be. <laughs> I'm trying to get everything figured out, but I'm having fun. It's a good pastime to get back in. I've been away from it long enough that, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm also racing again. I race in the sim and... I'm not very good at it. It's taken me a while to figure out the new advances in the in the simulation for NASCAR racing, but I'm I'm having a good time with that. So uh, maybe somewhere in the future when I get a broadcast that I think is worthy of sharing, I'll plug a URL into the notes and you can go listen to the play-by-play -play that we have. Um, I had a topic prepared about the dynamics of interaction between beekeepers and 
what you should be paying attention to based on what you're listening to or absorbing when you're out on the internet, when you're listening to speakers, when you're listening to podcasts, when you're watching YouTube videos and so on. It's long enough to be a standalone episode. And in fact, I think that's what I'm going to do with 181 is just have it as a sidebar topic. I danced throughout this episode about the rationale for six frame nukes. And I think I'll have a combo platter and come back and in one place for the record, talk about my whole thought process about six frame nukes and why I think that's a a good way to go and why I'm experimenting with that. One byproduct of the switch over to six frame nukes in my yard is that I have a ton of boxes in the garage, all Langstroth 10 framers, and I've got to figure out if my plan to distribute them to out yards is going to work or I need to start selling them off at auction or something because I certainly have a huge pile. But um, I guess that's a good problem to have. I'm still out there cleaning up old, crusty comb. I found even more boxes to take care of. And I was discussing with Bob Kloss about winter projects. And I'm trying to make sure that I got everything keeping me occupied so I can stay away from the doldrums of what should I be doing and not watching reruns or up there doing uh, Yellowstone um uh, marathons <laughs> yellowstone's a show with kevin costner that we've been watching really enjoying it but uh, it's not a good idea to sit down and watch about eight hour-long episodes in a stretch I'm trying to avoid that as it is when i start to rambling it's time to close things down like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we accomplish great things thanks for listening everyone and be well <laughs>